All right, this afternoon, um, the Bible passage that we're considering together comes from a place that we haven't really broached for some time. It comes from um, a book that many of us are, many of us are very familiar with um, and truly love, and that's the, the book of the Psalms. Now, there's 150 Psalms in all, and what we're going to do is we're going to look at Psalm 22. The author under the inspiration is David. But the psalm that we're considering is not really even first and foremost about David. It's about Jesus. And um, what we're going to be focusing on this afternoon is something that's very, very important for us in understanding what Jesus has done for us. And that is we're going to be focusing on the theme of his sufferings. The theme of his sufferings. And, you know, we need to understand, you know, if, if well, let's put it this way. If you, if you grew up in the Christian faith, you, you grow up with the con, not only the concept, but the reality of Jesus Christ, his person and his work. And you grow up with the idea that when Jesus was born into this world, he was born to suffer. He wasn't born to live the high life of the rich and famous, you know. He was born in poverty, and he was born fundamentally throughout his life to suffer and that suffering ultimately came to its culmination which Psalm 22 talks about in his crucifixion. Now when you when you hear that over and over again as you're growing up in the Christian faith it just it becomes something that you just become accustomed to and the wonder of it and the pain of it just kind of you know goes in one ear sometimes and when and out the other or it's a thought that comes into the mind blip and it's gone again. Um, we need to understand something, and that is when you look at the Christian faith and the sufferings of Jesus in light of other religions, there are other religions who look at this, and, the, and they're really quite baffled by that, particularly uh, Jews. Remember, the Bible says that Jews find Jesus a stumbling block. Um, uh, followers of Islam, the same thing. You know, um, The sufferings and the death of Jesus are just uh, inexplicable to them. And that is because they, they talk about Allah, they don't, they don't talk about Jesus as the Son of God because they would say, we're not polytheists, we're monotheists, we believe in only one God, and Christians say, well, we do too, but we need to explain what we mean when we say Jesus is the Son of God and, and all of that. But, but um, they say we serve one God as Allah, and to say that, number one, God has a son is not only blasphemous, but when you say that God's son, the way you Christians talk about him, actually suffered and died, and you claim Jesus to be God, God would never suffer. That's a slap in the face of God. But as Christians, we say, no, 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 no. You need to understand why it is that Jesus, as the son of God and as fully God himself, had to suffer and die for us. You have to ask yourself the question, why? Why? Well, we're going to look at that. Um, this afternoon. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to do something a little bit different. Um, you know, typically what we do is we read a Bible passage, and then we, we, we cite a document that we've been going through called the Heidelberg Catechism, and we cite a question and answer, a couple questions and answers together. But what we're going to do this afternoon is we're going to begin with a catechetical statement, which we're going to confess together, and then I'm not even going to read from Psalm 22, but I'm going to go through Psalm 22 with you and I need you to look at, if you brought a Bible, you can look at your Bible. Otherwise, look at the overhead as we follow Psalm 22 together, as we focus on the sufferings of Christ, especially in his crucifixion. All right. So, if you put the very good. All right. Now, we're going to confess these words together, as we typically do. I'll read the question, and then we'll say out loud the answer. And I notice, even though we have a smaller crowd here because it's Labor Day weekend, I thought, why are you saying? You sang pretty well. So keep that volume up when you give the answer, right? 
What do you confess when you say that he, that is Jesus, suffered? Let's say it together. During all the time he lived on earth, but especially at the end, Christ bore in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. Thus, by his suffering as the only atoning sacrifice, he has redeemed our body and soul from everlasting damnation and obtained for us the grace of God, righteousness, and eternal life. All right, amen and amen to that. It tells you the reason why Jesus had to suffer. Okay, now, um, I see you gathered here before me this afternoon, and as I look, I see various faces, and I can guarantee to you, no matter who you are, whether you're a man or a woman or a child, no matter what station in life, no matter what your background, I can guarantee that every one of us at some point in our lives have suffered. We've suffered. It may be something as small as a prick of a finger that makes you cry when you're a kid, or a sliver or a scraped knee, or it may be something as severe as you get over uh, older, the loss of a child, or a debilitating disease, or a cancer diagnosis, or what have you, or, or something more emotional, more, something more mental, deep depression, that, that just kind of like a cloud just descends upon you, and you just can't seem to escape it. Whether it be emotional, whether it be psychological, whether it be physical, whether it be relational, every one of us here, every one of us has suffered. And I don't want to make light of that. But at the same time, we have to put our own sufferings in perspective and we have to realize and we have to admit that our sufferings that we experience in our lives are really minuscule. They are nothing compared to the sufferings of Christ because while you and I suffer as a result of living in a fallen world, Jesus Christ also suffered as a result of living in a fallen world. But the sufferings that he experienced were so much more weighty, lengthy, deep, broad. You know, the Catechism, I don't know if you noticed this, but the Catechism made a very good point. Oftentimes when you and I think about the sufferings of Christ, we think about the sufferings of Christ at the very end of his life. You know, we think about, oh, what he experienced on the cross, as the Bible describes it. The Catechism rightly says that he suffered from the very beginning, the opening days of his life to the very end. Those are broad sufferings. But Jesus' sufferings were also in body and in soul. And what made Jesus' sufferings is so unique is that while he is suffering as the great sin bearer, the wrath of God is being poured out upon Jesus from the very moments that he comes into this earth to the very point where he died. We don't experience that. Jesus experienced that. And so what we're looking at this afternoon is, is hopefully an opportunity to better understand and better appreciate what our Lord actually endured for us. For, for us. And I want to do that by looking at um, Psalm 22. And you know, um, Psalm 22 carries with it one of the most specific and thorough descriptions of the sufferings of Christ, especially in his crucifixion, than you see in all of the Bible. And that's in the Old Testament. It begins, if you look at Psalm 22, by describing Jesus. And if you put up the first, um, the first uh, PowerPoint, right? 
This is how Psalm 22 begins. And it begins by describing the difficulties, the sufferings of our Lord, first and foremost, not even by first looking at verses 1 and 2, by looking at the superscription, the title. Now, I think I've said this before, but in case you weren't here when I said it or you've forgotten, when you, oftentimes with the Psalms, not always, but many times, um, before verse 1 begins in a particular psalm that you're looking at, there's what we call a superscription, there is a title. And that is not an editorial insertion where, well, somebody decided when they were translating the Bible, we'll just add that for the, for, so that we can set a historical or environmental context. You know? No, it's part of inspired scripture. I don't know if you know that, but the title is part of inspired scripture. All right? So what does the title say? To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, that's the title of this song or this psalm, and it says a psalm of David. So David is the author of this psalm. He inspired, is inspired by the Holy Spirit to actually write the psalm. Inspired by whom? By the Spirit of God. Ah, by the Spirit of Christ. So this is very interesting. The Spirit of Christ himself is inspiring David to write these very words about David's own experiences with suffering that ultimately point forward to the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Now what's really interesting about this psalm is that it's, 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 it's providing a picture, an image of Jesus' suffering, particularly on the cross, which, uh, well... When you think of crucifixion, that is pointing to crucifixion was um, a form of execution that was exercised by the Roman Empire, right? What's the Jewish form of execution? Anybody know? Stoning. Stoning, right? This is a Roman form of execution. Yet, isn't it interesting, 1,000 years before even Jesus comes to this earth in human flesh... David, a Jew in this very Jewish book of the Psalms, is pointing forward to a form of execution that the Romans exercised, not the Jews, 1,000 years before. What a prediction. Which tells you that when Jesus is inspiring this by means of his spirit, he's, he's pointing us forward to that very time when he takes on human flesh and experiences suffering and ultimately death on the cross. Hmm. Now, how does David describe himself and David as a type of Christ pointing forward to Christ? How is he ultimately describing Christ? He's describing Christ as a doe. What's a doe? Well, a doe is a female deer. And this is an animal not like a lion. A deer is very vulnerable. And a deer is very sensitive to the surroundings. And the psalmist, David, pictures this Jesus as the, and himself as this deer that's surrounded by bulls and dogs that are seeking to tear the flesh of this deer apart. Why do I say that? Well, if you take a look at um, verses 12, should be up there. Yeah. He says this, he says, Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening, a roaring lion. And then he goes on to say later in verse 16, For dogs encompass me, a, a company of evildoers encircles me. So for, for kids especially have this wild imagination, here you have this picture of Jesus as a female deer surrounded by, surrounded by bulls and surrounded by dogs with their mouths open seeking to tear them apart. I don't know if you caught this uh, story this past week. It's kind of an awful story, but I read about a woman in the, in, in back in the States, in the South, who 
was, a, was a delivering um, mail, and she came upon this neighborhood, and five pit bulls got out of a gate and attacked her and, and killed her. I mean, it's, it's just it's, it's an awful, awful story. But when you think about that, then you begin to understand some of the fear, the fear that Jesus faced at this point in his life. But perhaps one of the lowest points of Jesus, especially when he was on the cross, and if you'll go to the next PowerPoint, if you would... Verse 1 begins like this, and don't worry, is we're, we're not going to take the whole rest of the psalm at this speed, okay? So he says, my God, now, now if you grew up in the Christian faith, you know when Jesus was on the cross, he spoke these words, right? He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? And so on. Now, when you look at the New Testament account and Jesus is on the cross, he has been suffering for some time, and then he gets to this abominably very low point where he feels completely abandoned by his own father. And what you, what you begin to see in the crucifixion account of Jesus, especially in the New Testament, is that in the beginning, Jesus is surrounded by all kinds of people. And then what happens as, as, as Jesus is nearing death on the cross eventually, people start going away. So Jesus, first of all, has many disciples, and then he has 12, and then the disciples flee during the time of his trial, and, and fewer and fewer people come, and then Jesus is left with a few mockers, and before you know it, you got this funnel going on as Jesus is dying, and you, you finally come to that lowest point in Jesus where it's just him and his father. And I don't know if you've noticed this, if you have loved ones who have died. Um, Joy and I were just talking about this the other day. So I think it's like the 10th anniversary of my dad's death. And when you watch a person die in hospice, it's like, it's like it's, it, 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 when it comes to within the final day or even the final hours of their life, it's like they have... They have, they have put everything aside, and it's just, it's just them and their God. It's really, really interesting. And here is just Jesus and his Father. And in, in, in this point where it's just Jesus' Father, Jesus gets to the point where he's, he's like, even my own Father has abandoned me. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then and in the New Testament, just kind of leaves it at that. But it's rather interesting, and you have to ask the question, did Jesus say more than that, but it's not recorded in the New Testament? Was Jesus either meditating on these words or was Jesus actually speaking them where he said on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But in addition, he says these words, and why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. You see how Psalm 22 just allows us to enter even more into the deep sufferings of our Lord and his feelings of abandonment. Did Jesus actually speak all those words of verses 1 and 2? Maybe. Maybe he actually said more on the cross. Next PowerPoint, verse 4 and following. In you our fathers trusted. Perhaps imagine Jesus on the cross and he's speaking to his father or maybe meditating at least on these words for he inspired these words himself and you our fathers trusted they trusted and you delivered them to you they cried and were rescued in you they trusted and they were not put to shame so Jesus is saying when you look at the historical record oh father of the way that you dealt with your people they cried to you and they were rescued and this is what I need but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who mock me, they make their mouths at me, they wag their heads, he's ridiculed. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. 
And all of this is fulfilled in the New Testament when we read about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. We could, we could go on with this, but I, I just want to say this. What, what we're allowed in verse 4 and following is we're, we're allowed to, to get into something in Jesus' life that we oftentimes don't think about. And that is his psychological, his mental, his emotional, and also when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His relational sufferings. You know? I think, I think oftentimes when you and I think about the suffering of Jesus Christ, you know, we think, we don't think so much about his life, or we know that suffering was there, but we think especially of the culmination of his sufferings on the cross, right? And we, we think of those physical sufferings, like the, the, the crown of thorns on his head, and we've seen those pictures, right, where the th- crown is on his head and you get these drips of blood coming down. Or we think of, of the flogging of Jesus' back, or we think of the Roman soldiers who just, you know, pummel him with their fists. Or, of course, we think of the, the nails that are driven into Jesus' hands and feet. I mean, these, these are intense physical sufferings, but what we have to what we have to bear in mind this afternoon is that the sufferings of Christ are more than physical. They are what, we, what I would call multidimensional, holistic sufferings. Sufferings, like the Catechism talks about, sufferings in body, but also in soul. Also in his spirit, and relationally, and psychologically, and mostly, and this mental anguish that is going on. I mean, it, it, gives, us, it gives us a greater appreciation for what our Lord went through for us. And it's also a reminder to you that when you are grieved in your own soul or you're going through mental anguish or when you're going through that de- bout of depression or postpartum or whatever, you know, we, we, we struggle not only, we not only struggle in this in our flesh, but we struggle in our hearts, we struggle emotionally and so on. Bear in mind, even more so, Jesus struggled in those ways and he identifies exactly with what you're going through. Okay? Now, as we move on, this is not to diminish the physical sufferings of Christ, however, which is what we see if you put the next uh, PowerPoint on. Verse 12 and following. Many bulls encompass me. He says, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. So there's fear. And, and what, what you see when Jesus is on the cross and what you see in Psalm 22 is there's what I call a vacillation. He, he, he goes like this. So there's, there, there's fear, but then, but then there's trust. And then fear takes over, and then there's trust again. He's going back and forth. That, too, is part of his sufferings, right? Jesus says, verse 14, he says, I am, and, and now we get, an, we get an insight to what's going on with him in the cross. I am poured out like water, he says. Now, we can't say for sure, but this could refer to the profound perspiration that Jesus experienced on the cross. Remember, this is in the Middle East, and remember that Jesus was, was his most intense sufferings were between 12 and 3 in the afternoon when the sun is at its brightest and when the heat is greatest. I am poured out like water, he says, and all my bones are out of joint. I'm broken and I'm hurting. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. It could mean that he's just experiencing the, 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 the heaviness and the difficulty of his sufferings. It could mean when it says his heart has become wax. We know that when individuals are, are crucified, um, as they are hanging there, you know, they, 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 they have the nails driven, oftentimes not even in the hands, in, in the wrist, because the hand can tear, so they put it into the wrist. And they're hanging on the cross, 
And then they oftentimes will, will put a single spike through both the feet so they're just hanging there on the cross. Well, you can imagine when you're doing that, if you, if you, would, if you go home and just, if you have a bar and you just hang there, hang there for about a minute or two if you can hold on and see how easy it is for you to breathe. Right? So imagine Jesus on the cross, and every once in a while these, these, um, uh, these, uh, these criminals who are being crucified, they would have to hoist themselves up so they can breathe, so the, the air can get in the lungs, and so that, so that their heart can, can beat properly to produce blood, right, and circulate blood to the rest of the body, but the longer you're crucified, the more difficult that becomes. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. There's exhaustion. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. There's dehydration. For you lay me in the dust of death. And then Jesus once again experiences this fear. These dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. These very people who mock him. And then Jesus goes on. Of course, we think of the piercing, right? They pierced my hands and his feet. Now, bear in mind, these things are written 1,000 years before Christ. Do you see how detailed the Spirit is giving these words to David to speak about the Christ and his sufferings? Verse 17, he says, I count all my bones, and they stare, and they gloat at me. I think, you know, a number of commentators will bring this out. We don't know for sure, but perhaps when, when, the, when the psalmist is talking about people staring at Jesus and they gloating over him, they're kind of making fun of him, it's not just because they see Jesus being crucified, but it's very likely that Jesus was either nude or partially nude when he was on the cross. That, too, is part of his humiliation. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So Jesus is divulging all this information that he's experiencing on the cross. And then verse 19 and 20 and 21, he says, But you, O Lord, do not be far off. So he's crying out to his Father again. Oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Say, so here, now the psalmist is coming to its climax, and he cries out, Save me from the mouth of the lion. A cry of desperation. What else can he do but cry out to his father to save him from his situation? And it, and it, it appears in some ways that that not only is this the lowest point, but it almost seems that all is lost, but it's not. For verse 21 is the fulcrum on which this psalm changes. He says in the ha- second half of verse 21, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. You see the difference? You see the turning point in verse 21? First he says, save me from the mouth of the lion. But then there is this vote of confidence Lord, you have rescued me. Or some translations have it, you have answered me from the horns of the wild oxen. Jesus is still suffering at this point, but I think he knows the end. He knows that death is not the final word, as death is not our final word when we're in Christ, but he knows the resurrection is coming, and he knows the ascension is coming. Now, what the psalmist does is he, 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 he allows us an insight into Jesus' sufferings, and these sufferings build and build and build. Psychological, emotional, mental, relational, physical sufferings are building and building until he cries out to be saved. He cries out to be rescued, and then he confesses, you know what, Lord, you have saved me. You, you have answered me. You have answered me. So, so what the psalmist does in verse 21, it moves us. It moves us from tragedy to triumph. 
into ultimate victory. And notice to whom this victory is announced. It's announced to three different groups. Look at verses 22 and 23, if you'll put that on the overhead, if you would. First of all, this, this triumph of Jesus, for it's in the cross that Jesus not only secures our salvation, but he declares victory over the devil himself. He says, you will not have the victory, I will have the victory, for I'm paying the price for my people's sins. And he declares this beautiful truth, he declares this victory, this triumph, first of all, to his own people, the Jewish people, in verses 22 and 23. He says, I will tell your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him all you offspring of Israel. You know, when Jesus came to this earth, remember that as he was ministering to individuals, at the beginning of his ministry, he said this. He said, he said I have come first for the Jew and then secondly for the Gentile. If uh, I can remember Romans 1:16, um, for I'm not, the Apostle Paul says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power unto salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first, and then also to the Gentile. So this victory that Jesus achieves on the cross, he makes the announcement, first of all, to his people. He says, I have come for you. But most of his people said, what? Thanks, but no thanks. We don't even believe you are a Messiah. So what we see, especially in the book of Acts, is that while his own people reject him, Jesus says, okay, then I'm moving on, and I'm moving on to the Gentiles, that is, to the non-Jew, to the nations of this world. And he makes this declaration Put it on the PowerPoint, if you would, verses 27 and 28. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. What a beautiful thing. Like I said this morning, our God is a missionary God. And here we find a missionary statement. For Jesus says, what I have done, I've done not only for you, my people, but I've done it for people of every tribe, nation, and tongue. That's how wide the victory of the gospel is, right? For those of every nation. And then finally this, the last two verses. Jesus not only declares victory to his people and to the nations of the world, but also for those yet to be born. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. What are they declaring? What is Jesus declaring to his people and to the nations of the world and also to the unborn, those yet to be born into this world? What is he telling them? He's telling them this. I've done it. I've done it. Or he might say, I've accomplished it. That's how the psalmist ends. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he, and I submit to you, this is Jesus, the he, that he has done it. He has done what? He's done what he's been called to do by his Father, to fulfill his mission, to suffer and to die for the sins of his people, for our sins. Do you remember when Jesus was on the cross? Jesus was hanging. And, and there's so many times when you read the New Testament and you're going, oh, yep, here and here and here and here and here. This is all fulfilled exactly to the T. And you remember at one point, Jesus is hanging on the cross. And, and, and what did Jesus say? It is what? It is finished. It is finished. The, the word in the Greek is telestai. 
telestai, which means literally, it is accomplished. <laughs> In other words, Jesus is saying, when he says, it is finished, he's saying, yep, you know what? What I've come to this earth to do has been culminated on the cross. I have accomplished what I've come to do, and that is to suffer and die as a substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of my people. And so in the end, what does Psalm 22 teach us? It teaches us this fundamental truth, that our sin and our violations of God's will, our sin is so great, and God's almighty wrath upon that sin is so great, and it's so intense that it required Jesus to experience multi, multi-dimensional sufferings on our behalf. Simply put in the words of the catechism, Jesus paid the ultimate price of rejection and damnation so that we might receive the ultimate gift of acceptance and eternal life. That's what we talk about when we talk about the substitutionary sufferings and death of Jesus Christ. He substituted for us so that we might be set free. And I think, I think when you look at Psalm 22, and when you read it for yourself, and when you get to ponder all the details of what Christ went through in his suffering, I don't know about you, but sometimes I just go like, I can't believe this. Why, why would you do that for somebody like me? Why would you do that for somebody like me? Because, man, I don't even begin to deserve this. I mean, how, how many, come on, how many of us sitting here right now can say, well, you know, I think... I think I kind of deserve, I think I, th- I deserve what Jesus did for me. No, you didn't. Nobody did. And sometimes when you really think about it, it makes you want to cry. And hopefully, ultimately, it makes you want to sing. Because you know what? Singing is one of the most beautiful and moving ways to express our gratitude to God, whereby through song we say, Lord, thank you, thank you. Amazing love. How can it be that you Oh, Lord, should die, should suffer and die for me. You know where it comes from? It comes from one of the most beloved and well-known hymns in Christian hymnody. It's called, And Can It Be, written by a man named Charles Wesley. We're going to sing that uh, in just a bit. But before we do, I want you to join me in prayer, and then we're going to have just a little bit of discussion time. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father. Lord, in, in some ways, this is not an, an easy psalm to read. It's not an easy psalm to teach or to preach because it allows us a very vivid and intimate insight into what Jesus Christ did when he, as the Apostles' Creed puts it, suffered on our behalf. Lord, we know it's necessary. We know it's necessary. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that while you could have required from us because of our sin to suffer for that, and to suffer not only in this life, but for eternity, or you could have just allowed us to die and fall into a state of non-existence, but you... Through your suffering and through your death, you freed us. And you allowed us, because of your substitutionary suffering and death, to be set free from our own eternal suffering and the non-existence that comes through death. 
or even worse yet, damnation. And when we think of this, Lord, we are just profoundly grateful and profoundly moved for all that you have done for us. And we thank you, we thank you, we thank you for this. We praise you this afternoon, Lord Jesus, and we pray this all in your name. Amen.